All right, y'all, it's spring, and you know what that means. It's time to start planning our summer festival traveling. Yep, it's time to get into my Airbnb bag cross-country, a.k.a. uh, time to visit my homes all across the country. And you know what I never think about? Why not list my own spot on Airbnb and host some folks at my house? I mean, my house is cute. Yes, let's make money while we're spending money. Just trying to help you out, man, because your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. Experts claim there is nothing tougher than a diamond. But at Diamonds Direct, we beg to differ. Have you ever met a mother? Strong, radiant, timeless. This Mother's Day, give her the gift that meets her match. With diamond jewelry starting at $200, plus Diamonds Direct's exceptional quality and unbeatable everyday price, you're sure to give her a gift that wows this generation and the next to come. Experience the thrill of jewelry shopping done right at Diamonds Direct. Diamonds Direct. Your love, our passion. Tired of not being able to get a hold of anyone when you have questions about your credit card? With 24-7 U.S.-based live customer service from Discover, everyone has the option to talk to a real person anytime, day or night. Yes, you heard that right. You can talk to a human on the Discover customer service team anytime. So the next time you have a question about your credit card, call 1-800-DISCOVER to get the service you deserve. Limitations apply. See terms at discover.com slash credit card. Questlove Supreme is a production of iHeartRadio. What is up? This is Unpaid Bill from Questlove Supreme. In celebration of Women's History Month, we are highlighting conversations new and old with some legendary women. Back in July 2021, we interviewed one of the most important rock bands in the last 30 years, also being credited as pioneers in the Riot Girl movement. I asked Carrie and Corinne about having a band without a bass player, which always blew me away. Listen back as Slicker Kinney talk about health, creativity, and art. Enjoy this episode. Ladies and gentlemen, I got the name of my show. Okay, I got it. Freestyle <laughs> Supreme. Right. <laughs> Matter of fact, let's just let this be the intro. Summer of Supreme. <laughs> Summer of Supreme. Supreme Summer. <laughs> Ladies and gentlemen, this is Questlove, and you're listening to another episode of Questlove Supreme featuring Unpaid Bill. <laughs> Tony winner of Freestyle Love Supreme, by the way. Yes. We have uh, also Fontigolo with us. What's up, brother? What up? What up? What up? What's happening? And Sugar Steve. Hi, everybody. Yeah. How you doing? Uh, this is going to be a very quiet episode because uh, Lai is not with us right now, but she's with us. <laughs> <It's> very, <laughs> a very quiet episode. We're very honored to have our guest today. Our guest first emerged from Olympia, Washington. Via 1994. Well, I would like to say the Northwest because I don't know if it's Portland or Olympia, Washington. But um, I will say that I became aware of them because of everyone knows that of my fan worship of music critics. And it's like my 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 music hero, Robert Christigau, formerly of the, of, of the Village Voice. Um, he called them one of the most important uh, rock bands in the last 30 years. And they've been. Uh, rightfully credited as the pioneers in the uh, Riot Girl movement between their self-titled debut in uh, 94 and their seventh album, uh, The Wood, in 2005. They took a nine-year hiatus, uh, which I've never heard of hiatus that long, unless you're from Richmond, Virginia. 
Uh, returning. I was about to say. <laughs> <laughs> I'm sorry. No, no shade. I am. Right. That's that's a real hiatus. Uh, returning with 2014's uh, No Cities to Love, uh, following another five-year break uh, with the St. Vincent produced uh, The Center Won't Hold. By the way, shout out to any band uh, that uses any uh, Chinua Chebi or uh, William Yeats uh, references in their album titles. Uh, if the roots were to make things fall apart, part two, I would have actually called it The Center Won't Hold. Uh, thankfully, the gap between uh, their latest album, uh, which is called The Path of Wellness, was only two years. Ladies and gentlemen, please welcome to Questlove Supreme, Sleater Kenny. Thank you, ladies, for joining us. Yes. Thanks for having us. <laughs> Thanks for having us. How are you? We're good. Yeah. We're good. We're, good. Yeah, we're, we're uh, we, yeah, we would just to answer your question from the intro. I think it was I think the Northwest is a, a good enough thing to say because Olympia, Portland, the, yeah, they're far apart, but we were kind of living in both places at once. So that counts. You know, it is weird in, in doing research. I realized I didn't realize how much of the actions of the Northwest and the creative epicenter of the Northwest really informed the blueprint of, of my my career. Because, you know, in choosing Geffen as a label, of course, Nirvana was like part of that decision making. Even us having to move to Europe, um, inadvertently, Kirk is sort of responsible for that. But, you know, we spent a lot of time like Portland's my all time favorite city on Earth. And just the, the, the time period that we spent performing and gigging between the uh, the two states between like 94 to 99 well really on but there was a period between like 94 and 99 in which like we did a lot of concentrated touring between the two areas and sort of having gotten to know like a lot of people that were sort of legends on the scene like i didn't get to know you two but like when i first got there sort of like kathleen was kind of our guide like and you know we really didn't know about the Riot Girl movement and anything like that, but she was like really an interesting character that sort of like took a liking to us and kind of showed us the rope. And so I didn't realize like how much the North, the Northwest sort of played in, in our decision. I want, I actually want to start by asking. So during that period in which like the entire music press was like salivating, almost fetishizing, like what's coming, like what's, what's the magic in the Northwest or whatnot. Like how does how does that play into how you can even find a space to be creative in in forming a band and getting space when like every critic's looking for the next like who's coming out on sub pop or these labels like what was it like then? Yeah, yeah. No, I think it was I think it was pretty overwhelming like at the time because there was such high level journalists who would like come to a riot girl meeting or mm -hmm. show up <laughs> at a riot girl show. And, you know, we were, just, we were kids at the time. Like we were writing this like confessional poetry and this, you know, this work that was like very personal. And um, I don't think we realized how intense that spotlight was. Um, but when we did, I think it was, you know, it felt like it was almost radioactive at times. Yeah. And we actually left like when Slater Kinney formed, 
which was, yeah, like 1994, we were still in other bands, but we wanted, we started playing music together and, Mm -hmm. you know, Olympia and that scene was, was so insular. And I mean, you know, when you're coming out of a small scene, there's, it's like a blessing and a curse. You have all this support, there's community, but then there's also this way where you feel like everyone already knows you. Everyone already kind of has these expectations of you and you can't necessarily step out of that or redefine who you want to be. And so we actually went all the way to Australia. Like we actually created space and distance in order to be able to imagine ourselves as something else, imagine ourselves outside the glare of some of that, you know, journalistic scrutiny. And I think you have to do that. You either, if you don't have the ability to physically leave, you have to create an imagined space for yourself. I was wondering if that was a typo because I was like, wait a minute, Melbourne, Australia to create your first record. Like, how does that happen? <laughs> but I right. also, I also wanted to know because I, 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 it's, it's weird because I fell into you guys kind of ass backwards and I'll, I'll be fully transparent it's like I know everything about you guys and I know nothing about you guys only because it's kind of weird to say that I fell and ass backwards because usually when a guest comes on the show, like I know everything about them but their DNA. And so in my particular case, like if people come up to me in the airport, they you know refer to me as like, oh, that's Jimmy Fallon's drummer or like, oh, <laughs> you're the guy on Yo Gabba Gabba. And, you know, sometimes my ego like in the, it doesn't hurt now, but like in the beginning, like my ego would get like really deflated and. I would just, you know, I feel like that was sort of like asking Michael Jordan if he's the guy in the Haynes commercial. <laughs> so I would say that you were always a name that I was I was fully aware of up until the creation of Portlandia. Like I only knew and studied uh, the Sleater model simply because like your names were always constantly on the top of every like of critics I worship. And like your Metacritic numbers were super high. You know, Krista Gow is putting you on the top of the pass and job stuff and like Again, like I'm in a critic obsessive, like putting these shits on my wall, studying these things, figuring out the, the 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 metrics and all that stuff. And you know, but it took reading uh, your hunger book, Carrie, for me to really like. All right, I'm gonna dive into this and actually like, I'm gonna immerse myself and understand their art. And the thing was because I fell into you first with humor, and then I went back to the self title album in '95. I was like, oh wait a minute, huh? <laughs> I was like, yo, son, I wasn't ready. But then I realized that you guys have have really like I feel like we almost took a similar journey with in terms of, you know, where you started, the the internet meme, how it started and where it's and where where you are now. It's it's been quite a journey. How are you how are you as far as the position of where you're perceived as like this really influential group that is is influential to other musicians, but like not mainstream. Like, how does that feel? You know, I think, like you were saying, you you've like been through a journey, right. and and I feel like, I feel like with you know with getting older and with kind of having that realization that music is a journey, you know, and that art is a journey, and and humor and all of it can be part of it. I think that. I feel really grateful of where we're at in a way, because it's true. We might have like less commercial success than a lot of other like bands that we've sort of come up with, but we have a lot of like artistic freedom 
Mm -hmm. you know, that I feel like we are still on this journey that is like, we're building on it, like with producing our last, our most recent record ourselves and trying out different things and hiring this whole new band of musicians. Like I'm, I feel really lucky in that way of like, I feel very much like we are on this journey of like learning and becoming more, you know, able to, to make art, make music. I I was going to ask why it took so long for you guys to finally produce your records and what took so long to come to this place where you know what is in your head and what you want to execute, or is it just important sometimes to have a, a, a fresh set of ears that can sort of, you know, is not afraid to challenge you or make you find, uh, you know, an alternative way to get your ideas out. Yeah. I think it's, been nice to have an arbiter and you know i mean you know from being in a band it's different than being a solo artist so you're already contending with multiple personalities and sometimes you need that peacekeeper and so that you're not sort of turning on each other with ideas you know someone that can just step in and be like how about this and you know and then it almost gives you as a group something to like cohere around you're like well actually we think you know it just it forms these like in-group dynamics so i think we've always relied on i mean i would say our early records were for all intents and purposes co-produced by us you know as you know Mm -hmm. aside from like dave fridman on the woods or this guy roger mutino on the hot rock it was very hands-off approach from our producers you know they often wanted to just kind of capture the essence but it was just nice to have another voice there i guess um so yeah, that's why. Since the constant presence on, you know, majority of your records was uh so John Goodmanson, who, you know, I'm familiar with well with his Wu Tang credits. I mean, he's worked with the RZA a few times. Yep. Done a whole bunch of other albums. I always wanted to know, like, was it a thing where if you felt that you couldn't express an idea to your bandmates that you'd sort of express it to him and then he could sort of translate it better so that feelings weren't rattled or whatnot, or. I don't feel like we ever circumvented each other. I think it was just having a sounding board and we trusted him. Like you said, like he's worked with really a a broad range of artists. He's great. You know, we never traditionally had a bass player, so he's great with drums. He's great with low end. Like he's, yeah, it was, I think it was almost like he was part cheerleader, part kind of (laughs) deciding vote. Um, but we never like said, hey, John, can you tell Corin that <laughs> I'd rather do this? So you're not the roots. OK, I get it. I get it. <laughs> <laughs> OK, uh, usually I start the show off. I'm I'm very interested in the, the journey that gets you there. This is the first time I'm really talking to Corinne. So I'll ask you what I mainly ask uh, our guest on the show. Can you tell me your first musical memory? Oh, my God. Did I say I like Nard War? I love it. <laughs> really pronounced it like few, fully memory. pronounced it. Yeah, <laughs> I know. I know these guys are like you. Never talk like this, Amir. What are you doing? Okay. Yeah, I. So my dad is like a hobby musician, um, and he did like folk music in the '60s. He actually opened a gig for like Pete Seeger once. Was like his claim to fame, and he went <laughs> on and you know and 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 eventually became like a college professor. But he would when I was born, he would like play music. And Mm. my first memory is like singing with him. So we, he would, you know, teach me Woody Guthrie folk songs and, you know, all that kind of like seventies stuff. So that's my first memory of me. Where were you born? I was actually born uh, 
in Pennsylvania at State College when my dad was getting his PhD there. Oh, you're from PA? Yeah. Okay. Yeah. So am I. Okay, cool. <laughs> uh, can you tell me the first album that you purchased? Oh, my God. Which is different from like an album in your house that's already there. Like the first album that you purchased with your own money. Yeah, put your own money on. Yeah. yeah. Or yeah. stole in this group. You could have stolen it. <laughs> I, there was like this... Uh, this album with Pat Benatar where she's wearing a straight jacket. <laughs> uh, the second album, not yeah. the heat of the night. Uh, yeah. The sec, the one with hit me with your best shot on it. Yeah. 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 The big album. Okay. Yeah. I was like, I, this, for whatever reason, I was like, I need this. <laughs> okay. I, wow. I put down hard money for that album. Was she your North star when you were growing up? Like what, what voices did you gravitate towards? Definitely Pat Benatar, you know, like this, the, Big, very muscular, you know, intense voice, great singer for mm -hmm. sure. And yeah, I mean, I love Dolly Parton. I loved Aretha Franklin. Yes. You know, like the big voice with a big like range was always like so influential, I think. All right, Carrie, I'll go to you. Uh, could you tell us what your first musical memory was? Yeah, I think mine is probably a little less cool than corn. Sorry. I have this young dog. It's like <laughs> suddenly decided this was, this is his witching hour. Um, <laughs> and, uh, my, my parents did not have great taste in music. They always liked the albums. Like there's the Eagles who I'm not a big fan of, but my dad also had all their solo albums too. Stop stalling. Just say it. Okay. <laughs> First, okay. You're stalling. So, all right. Definitely, it was my parents had a party, like not a party, but like a hangout, and they were they had the long run by the Eagles on, and I needed There's to go. With that. No, no, I like the Eagles. I like oh. this. I like that album. But I'm just saying, right. like, so I was. I needed to go to bed. My parents were like, "It's time for you to go to bed." And I was like, "I would first like to perform Life in the Fast Lane for you all." And, uh, wow! Wow! <laughs> and, which is a song about like driving on the highway, like uh, coked out of your head, and um, oh, and you know, you it know has a hell of a guitar line to it. So I, see it, it does, and I didn't know it was about that. I just thought it was about it was a cool song about driving. So I, I just sang along to the song, and my parents and their friends just humored me, and then I went to bed. That's the first thing I remember musically. <laughs> That's your first musical memory. Can you tell me the first album that you purchased with your own money? Yes, it was Thriller, Michael Jackson. Yes. I mean, I, yes. you know, it was the biggest album in the world and yeah, everyone had to yeah. have it and I listened to it a million times. I see. That was the first album I ever owned too. That was the first, uh, my own personal album that, that I, I owned myself. Yeah. See, to, to make you feel better, um, Carrie, although I would love to say something really cool, I've already been outed in the press. Uh, the world knows that like Neil Sedaka was the first 45 hours. <laughs> so, <laughs> so I got you. Laughed in the rain, the jam, though. Yeah, but mine was more bad blood. Like, <laughs> it was like, oh, wow. <laughs> sorry. Yeah. You know, so I, you know, I'm, I'm not that cool either, Carrie. So you're cool. At, at what point, uh, for the both of you, are you realizing that you have a voice or that? Music is something that you're interested in pursuing, not just something that casually that just happens, you know, in your household. I think for me, I 
I moved to Olympia to go to college. I went to like, you know, the Evergreen State College when all of the mm -hmm. stuff was happening. And I have to credit Bikini Kill and Bratmobile playing a show. And I was just, I just got to be like right up close, like right there when they were doing their thing. And I was like, I want to do that. Okay. I, I'm going to start a band. And I, I, in my head, I started a band like that night. I was just like, I'm, I'm in, I'm doing it too. Okay. You know, cause I saw them do it. They were my age and they weren't, they were just starting out. And so it just like opened the door. Can you explain to me the, the whole idea of what Riot Girl represents? And is that a title that was invented by the proprietors or again, was it some guy from spin magazine sort of searching for the <laughs> next big thing and then said, okay, this is Riot Girl with a bunch of R's in it. No, it was it was actually like a, a genuine movement. You know, it was okay. the 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 title was, you know, started by a young woman in DC who was like, We need to start an actual movement for women in in the independent music scene that that highlights women's roles and supports women and talks about safe spaces for women and and there were meetings. You could go to a meeting. You could talk about all these things. You could talk about, you know, being in a bad relationship, sexual assault, like all of the kind of like taboo stuff at the time. At that time. yeah. At the time, yeah, totally. there just wasn't another space for that stuff to, to come out and happen. So it was it was very real. It was very taboo at the time. And, you know, Kathleen Hannah was she was, you know, very much like a cultural leader, right? She was, she was like our poet because she was writing the stuff that she was an incredible poet, incredible writer and performer, you know, and very confrontational, but she was saying all the stuff that we were, we were all like so afraid to say ourselves. Okay. So the first time I met, Kathleen Henna. I didn't know. I was mean, like I didn't know anything about Rye Girl. What, like the Roots are just doing a show somewhere up in Seattle. Uh, uh, I forget uh, the spot in Seattle that we were playing. I know it's across the street from the spot where they throw fish. Oh yeah, um, the Showbox. Show yeah, we were at the Showbox. Um, yeah, I'll say that. Yeah, I met. Matter of fact, the first three times I've met or seen Kathleen, um, she was like cursing someone out. Like it was always like, <laughs> yeah, <laughs> yeah. And my ma my manager, Rich, was they. Those two were like really good friends. So he's sort of my manager who passed away. Um, him and her really became good friends, and um, you know he just liked that makes all the sense. Oh my god! Yeah, you see it now. Right? Hearing you describe, oh my god, that makes yeah. Oh, that's how I know this shit. Like my shit is all trickle down <laughs> economics from Rich, and him him and Kathleen were like talking whatever. Like I mean. But she was just, I'd never seen that person so just wild and unhinged and just told what the fuck she felt and all that. And like, I was just like, yo, this is unheard of or whatever. So that that was like my introduction to her. She was cool and very nice to us. But like in a second, she will, she'll bring the ruckus. And I just never seen that shit. So, <laughs> you know, and I don't want to be like, oh, intense or whatever. But that's what it was like for me meeting her. So. Could you tell me what the environment was, at least at the time in in the Northwest, that really prompted this movement to 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 really find its legs? 
Yeah. I mean, the, you know, the Northwest was, was this hotbed of like independent music. So there was all of this like criticism of mainstream music that was, you know, that wasn't genuine. It wasn't, you know, real art and everything. And, and this music scene was about, um, you know, real people telling their stories and making music available to everyone. So, you know, $5 shows and Mm -hmm. all of that. But it was also this kind of like slam dancing, rather violent culture at every show. And so there was just not a lot of space for, for women to feel like, am I going to be safe going to this show? Am I going to feel like I, you know, my voice is heard and the roles for women were still like, oh yeah, you know, my boyfriend's in that band, and right, and and they were just like women a foil. were still, yeah, a foil. Yeah. And so when you had a personality like Kathleen, who was like mm-hmm. protagonist, yeah. right? So she was like center stage at all times. Mm-hmm. It was like an arrow like shot through our hearts. It was like I I, I want to be Man. like that. Like I'm, I was a shy, awkward kind of academic type kid, but I saw someone just like take control of the stage, be like, I have a story to tell and everyone in this room is going to listen. And that just like opened the door. It, it kind of took feminism. And, you know, even though they're definitely, you know, very fair critiques of Riot Girl, like just like other early iterations of feminism, it lacked intersectionality. And, you know, it was, it was largely, white women, although there was tons of women of color there as well. Um, But it definitely took feminism out of an academic context and gave it a very like punk, very colloquial vernacular. It was like, here was, you know, like a world of punk had just come out of like a hardcore phase, especially on the West Coast, which was super violent. So all of a sudden it was like, what if we took this movement, these ideas that are largely like in you know, college textbooks and just put it over three quarts and screamed it. And that was very liberating, I think, to think that if you had a message, it it didn't necessarily need to be couched in a book, you know, that it could be couched in a in a scream or a yelp. And I think that just freed up a lot of people to express themselves. I mean, the same way so much music just becomes like a source of liberation for people where it's like, I have something to say and now I can say it over this song instead of, you know, writing and out I can this say it my way. Yeah. Exactly. Yo, what's up? This is Fonte, Fontigolo from Team Supreme. Black representation in media is very important to me. I think it's important to have our stories told by people who look like us and who have shared in our common experiences. Some of my earliest influences were Donnie Simpson. Uh, I would also say Tom Joyner, Angela Stribling, uh, Sherry Carter. They were just people who told our stories with a lot of class and dignity and were big inspirations to me. The next generation of influential Black voices can be found on NPR's new collection, Black Stories, Black Truths. Black Stories, Black Truths is a celebration of Blackness from NPR. Each of NPR's Black voices are as distinct, varied, and nuanced as the Black experience itself. In the Black Stories, Black Truths collection, you'll hear stories of joy, resilience, empowerment, and creating world-shifting things out of struggle. Every episode is a living account about what it means to be Black today, told from a unique Black perspective. From Bobby Schmurder to The Wire, Michelle Obama to Reparations, there's no limit to the range of Black stories, Black truths. Black perspectives haven't always been centered in the telling of America's story. Now, they are the story. 
In NPR's Black Stories, Black Truths, you'll find a collection of some of NPR's best podcast episodes celebrating the Black experience. Hear a feed of episodes from across NPR's podcast, The Center Black Voices. It's NPR Noir. Listen now to Black Stories, Black Truths from NPR, wherever you get podcasts. All right, y'all. You know what season it is. Tis the season for spring breaking and planning our summer travel. And if you're like me, you're already in your Airbnb app trying to find which spot is right for you. Now, listen, while I'm looking to spend all this money, what I'm not doing is thinking about making money with Airbnb. See, you got to change your mind state. Make the money while you're spending the money. How, you say, Laia, do I make the money? Well, you host at your house. And I know what you're thinking. I mean, my whole house? Uh, well, no, you don't have to do your whole house. I mean, you could do a room or, you know, do the whole house. So make some money while you're spending some money this summer. I'm trying to tell you, your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. Tired of not being able to get a hold of anyone when you have questions about your credit card? With 24-7 U.S.-based live customer service from Discover, everyone has the option to talk to a real person anytime, day or night. Yes, you heard that right. You can talk to a human on the Discover customer service team anytime. So the next time you have a question about your credit card, call 1-800-DISCOVER to get the service you deserve. Limitations apply. See terms at discover.com slash credit card. So what's the point where you two meet each other and sort of talk in terms of uh, starting a group in and starting the, the beginning of uh, Sleater Kenny? This was, yeah, I was 94 I was already living in Olympia to go to college as, as well. Uh, Corin was, I think you were in your senior year and we were both in other bands. Corin was in a, a much more like proto, <laughs> prototypical or <laughs> archetypal riot girl band called Heavens to Betsy. And I was in a band called <laughs> Excuse 17. You know, that was that like day, those Kathleen days. Kathleen was like, in that group too, correct? The Kathleen, no, uh, she was in neither. She was okay. in a, but I know yeah, she but, was in the other bands. I didn't know if, Everyone was in so many bands. Everybody back was then. trading. All right. Okay. Yeah. And so uh, we just saw this kindred spirit in each other. Like, you know, Corin was the only, her band was two people <laughs> Corin on guitar and a drummer. And then I was in a, a band with a similar setup to Slater Kinney, what Slater Kinney would be two guitars and drums. And we just, we thought, uh, you know, I, was, I heard Corin sing and I was like, I would love to be writing songs with this person. And she heard me play guitar and had the same feeling. And so we started playing kind of as a side project. And then pretty quickly that became what we wanted to do. It was just a, a very innate chemistry. Why was there always no bass players? <laughs> I'm just, I mean, just cause you didn't want them. It was, it was definitely like a thing in the Northwest of like, yeah. you know, how can we be different and not, not like, you know, sort of the archetype, rock band yeah and neither of us played i think it just was played bass and it, we, we just wanted to be this like kind of tight unit I, I think there's sometimes when you're when something is perceived as a lack it actually can be a strength where you're like how can we find a way into these songs without the traditional instrumentation you know it kind of forces you to write differently we detuned to c sharp so corn was singing in this really high register and you know trying to get low end sound out of her guitar. And yeah, I think we used it to our advantage. Although now in the past couple of years, you know, obviously we like bass early on though. People always asked us like, do you guys not like bass? I'm like, no, 
99.9% of all music we listen to has bass. Uh, okay. <laughs> uh, how long have you been playing guitar, Carrie? I started when I was 15. So it has been, what is that? 30 years. <laughs> okay. Yeah. Uh, yeah. And, uh, uh, Corinne, how long have you been playing guitar? It is. It's like 30 years because I started when I was like 18. So. Okay. With, with resisting the temptation of making a, a spinal tap uh, joke. And I know that um, Janet uh, joined the band three albums later, but was it always the plan to sort of have various musicians? Because I noticed that what determines what your sound is probably also depends on the musicians that are playing with you as well. So your first drummer, uh, Laura McFarlane, how do musicians come in the group and how do they leave? Like, is it just a one and done thing or you guys are just taking this a little more serious than the other or... No, I mean, definitely just to say about Janet, she was an integral part of the band. I mean, I wrote about it in my book when she joined, mm -hmm. you know, we were like, yeah, that's when you gelled. Yeah. We we're like, this is, this is great. I would, I'm, I am sure as people assess us, you know, 10, 15 years from now, or, you know, they're like, that'll be the classic period of the band. So, you know, they were never throwaway. She'll um, be in the rock and roll hall of fame. I get it. <laughs> yeah. She's a great drummer. So no, right. but Corin can talk about Laura. Um, Cause yeah, she had brought her own avant-garde style for sure. Yeah. I mean, I think a, a lot of it is like a little bit happenstance on, and on our part, like, you know, we went, to, we, we did go to Australia thinking like, Hey, let's play music, you know? And there mm -hmm. was, there was like this international underground music community for real. And we wrote her a letter. We wrote like the record label, a letter. And she mm -hmm. wrote back like, yeah, let's play music. And that's just how it happened. And, you know, and then eventually it was like, well, we, she did come over and we played music here. And then she was like, I kind of need to go back to Australia. We're like, yeah. Oh, okay. Now that you're in the game of being on an indie label, um, can you just walk us through the process of how do you manage to survive and be creative at the same time? Like for those first few albums, did you still have to have day jobs or was it like, okay, you know, we can sort of survive off of our club gigs and what units that we're selling? I mean, I think there's, there's definitely some back and forth, you know, like, there were still temp jobs, I think, even after Dig Me Out. I think that we kind of put this like idea about being creative and being control of the creative part of things as, as something that was really important to us. So we were always willing to like do whatever other jobs needed to be done, I think, just to like make money or whatever. I mean, we weren't we weren't not making money from touring and we were always wanting to to figure that out and make it better. We were always like ambitious about that it just it took us a while to get there but, but what at what point are you absolutely full-time we're banned i can pay my bills uh, i could put cheese on my whopper and not break the bank <laughs> like it probably it, dig it, me dig me out I would okay. say. So that's 97. I mean, let's also be clear. I, I was living in Olympia. I think my rent was three ninety five a month. <laughs> so that doesn't take wow. that much. You know, you can, you can play a, a couple shows even as a tiny band and, and make, you know, um, so we okay. were living in small <laughs> towns and in, in like, you know, share houses and stuff, but dig me out. I mean, one thing at the time on, 
indie labels was these profit profit shares, which, you know, you just, it was a split and people actually bought records. So even though these, these records weren't going gold or platinum, Mm -hmm. you know, when dig me out sells, you know, 75,000 copies or a hundred thousand copies and you have, you know, getting 50% Mm of a profit share, like at the time when you're in your early twenties, that's, that's definitely enough to, to live off of, even if you're splitting it three ways. So by, by the time that you guys are out, um, I also know that every major label was looking up and down the aisles for the next big thing or whatever. I mean, so at no point, like, you know, I know you guys started off on Chainsaw and then uh, the lovely title, Kill All Rockstars. Um, first of all, with, with those labels, is that, are there actual, are these actual labels or is it just like, okay, well, what are we going to call the label this time or like, is that your label and you guys have a, a distribution system or is well, is Kill All Rock Stars like an actual label like Sub Pop is and, you know. Yeah, no, Kill Rock Stars is definitely an actual label. And, and that point, I think, was pretty critical for us because after the first record came out on Chainsaw, which was another, a label run by, by fellow musicians, mm-hmm. but they were like still touring. That it was Jody and and, uh, and Donna from Team Drash, so mm-hmm. that was you know problematic. We did have a time when we were courted by major labels before Dig Me Out, and we considered it. You know, we considered, we argued about it, we fought about it like crazy. So I'm going to ask you a question, okay? Because I, I knew this was a parallel story with hip hop and with 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 this movement. How? At what point are you able to really relax and really not live in fear of the the idea of quote unquote selling out uh you know that that shadow following you like the perception of how we're because the thing is is that knowing what I know now and again because I worked backwards, I'm like yo like you know and you can even tell them that like with the videos that you're doing now and all that stuff, like the humor element and all those things that you're really showing your personalities. Whereas once I went back to the beginning and realized like, Oh, okay. It started off here. And then you guys slowly blossomed into this thing. I can imagine that the perception of who you guys were as a group or, or trying to present also probably played, you know, decisions made by the band and i always wanted to know like how the perception of being seen as sellouts or being too successful or should we do this commercial or should we sign to this this label this major label like will we be the same like how important is that perception playing in in the band at that period in your at least for the first three or four records uh, it, it was huge. I mean, I mean, you were around during that time too. I mean, the, it just was a, such a different beast. You know, this this idea that somehow you know a major label was going to you know rob you of your artistic credibility that by aligning yourself mm-hmm. with anything that was corporate or commercial, you know, signified uh, you know something that was anti art. Uh, right. You know, and there there were a lot of arguments, treaties. You know. Books, zines, you know, and and very <laughs> lively polemic and a lot of real anger, I think, from people. Um, 
that never really took into consideration how anyone grew up in terms of, you know, if they had money and that, you know, like it, it just mm-hmm. never, it was not a very nuanced conversation, but it was very real because you cared about your friends and to sort of admit, you know, I want something more than I can get this route was really tricky. So we just, we really didn't consider it. And I was probably the most hardline at the time. I was like the youngest, I was the baby in the band. And I think Corin was probably, you probably were the most interested. Am I right? No? No, oh, Steel Magnolia is the term I like to use. <laughs> Steel <laughs> I was always, my eyes were always on the business route more than anyone else. Yeah, she, she's good about that. But, you know, there were also these horror stories. You know, you you would, for every band that had a decent relationship with their A&R person, there was someone that had signed to a major and been dropped, you know, like a band like Spoon or like, or even for coming from the Northwest, you, you see Nirvana, you see this this guy that was tortured, supposedly, you know, tortured by the fact that, you know, he no longer felt connected to who he was and his fans. So there were all these cautionary tales. So can I ask, um, and, you know, maybe you can give me better insight because I never knew what happened at the end of it. Is do you think this is precisely the reason why Helmet didn't blow up? Like the perception of because the thing is, from an outsider and again, my outsider status was more study the stats, learn the names, but I never got I never got into the music. So as far as I knew, I knew there was a band that every label was salivating over and they gave them a seven-figure deal and it was Hellman. They were going to be the next big thing. And then I didn't hear shit from them. And what's really weird was that when my band got approached by Geffen, we were going to go to a whole nother label. We were ready to sign. And... When Geffen came along, we were like, eh, okay, let's 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 pull a helmet and see what happens. And we called their bluff and called this big ass gargantuan number, and they took it. And then it's like, oh shit. But yeah. the difference is, is like we never felt like, oh, we're selling out because we're taking a seven figure deal. It was like more like, yeah, we made it out of poverty, like that sort of thing. So, you know, people were like, ah, oh, y'all made it. That was the perception of it. But I always wanted to know with helmet making you know this this seven figure deal and we're, they're, they're going to be the next nirvana like did that affect their fan base and the support from the northwest from doing such a, a a lofty move as in grabbing the money in your opinion i think it could be i think you could make an argument that people were turned off by it okay i see i so it wasn't I, the I don't, okay i don't know i don't know i could i just at the time I think people talked about it and, you know, and, and there was like an element of, of people kind of turning up their noses, you know? Okay. So yeah. Yeah. And, but I also think there was such a, it was such a time of anti-pop, you know, anti-sheen and things were so compartmentalized genre wise. So it was like, you know, a band like Helmet or Jawbox, who also, you know, was a DC band that went and signed to a major, you know, these were these bands that were sort of, admired for like their roughness, you know, helmet with a cool, like corrosive sounding guitars and like this Mm -hmm. grit. And then they get a bunch of money. And at the time, of course, they're going to go, they're going to work with a better producer. They're going to work in a better studio. They're probably going to have nicer like equipment. And that's like, at the time was anathema to what people wanted to hear. Now people might be like, Oh, that's, that's cool. Like, you know, they're borrowing, you know, from other styles of music or, you know, it has a little bit more of a sparkle to it. But at the time that was like, oh, there we go. We have evidence that 
that it, and and that just wouldn't happen today. Well, I, I do have a theory about it's less about that. Um, I get worried when people start upgrading. Um, you know, probably in the hip hop sense of the you know the RZA, the reason why like hip hop fans uh, hang on so tightly to those very first six Wu Tang records. Is because you know they were made the 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 lore the, the folklore of Wu Tang the fact that he created this in his projects and Stapleton projects in in Staten Island and it was a very dirty dusty sound and you know that it got flooded out and then of course you know Wu Tang blew up and then he upgraded and then they made their second album like in Los Angeles living in Beverly Hills and. So, the sound changed. It was too clean. Same thing for Prince. Prince making his stuff in his bedroom. It's like the most perfect stuff in the world. Like, I love that sound. But the second he upgraded and got Paisley Park or whatever, and then the sound just, you know, it sounded more Vegasy to me and not, like, raw. And so I, I get worried when people upgrade. Um, so, which I guess that's probably the same perception that the sound changes or whatnot so um by the time you guys uh get past dig me out and like get to like the 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 hot rock or whatever i mean at what point are you guys even thinking of like changing your sound or 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 trying new ideas and how comfortable were you into making that pivot from where you were uh when you first started the band I feel like we always, I think, I think that was the moment. That was exactly the the moment that we made our first pivot, that it just, there was no way to repeat Dig Me Out. Like it, it had just come from such a place of forcefulness that there's just no way to relax to that record. Like it just starts on 10 and ends on 10 and it just has this, you know, this catharsis and and it's just like, yeah, it's a long kind of scream with some, you know, mm -hmm. different iterations. And with the hot rock, we just knew we couldn't repeat Dig Me Out. We just knew like this, we can't be part two. So I think we just created like this much more introspective landscape. And I think that set us up correctly because people could not, you know, at the time, like you're saying, like critics were much more, there was, it was more centralized in terms of like the power of like a critic. So that I, we just didn't want them to say like, it's dig me out, but not as good or not as intense. And right, so we right. made the hot rock. I will also say that um, I, have, I have an envy um, for artists that have the ability to really get their point out in under like two minutes. Like, again, if, if, if I'm given the, the space to create like the, a, a gargantuan, you know, 12 minute art song, like I'm that guy. But if you only give me two minutes to do something and I can't, and the fact that, especially in, like your debut album, like half the songs are like under, you know, it's like average length is like two minutes and, and 10 seconds or whatever. Or, I mean, is anyone teaching you about song structure? Are you guys like purposely taken from like the Ramones handbook or is this like, okay, the average punk song has to be under this length to, to get so much information out, like lyrically and all that content wise and under such a short period of time, like that's, that's almost a gift. But did it come from a place where you guys purposely wanted to structure it like that? Or, you know, or is it that as you got further along in the recording process, then 
you guys are realizing that like, oh, well, there's space for a bridge here or maybe a guitar solo there or like stretch out the songs, make them longer. But, you know, like for your first two albums, like the, the length of both of them were definitely under a half hour. I think your first album is at least 20 minutes. So <laughs> just talk about like the at least the songwriting process of how you guys in the beginning were writing songs as opposed to really getting in the rhythm of presenting these songs. What's the what's your work mode when you're creating songs? I think that so much of it was instinctual and jamming and, and honestly at the beginning, there wasn't a lot of even dialogue about like, how can we make this song better? It was just like, you know, Carrie would start playing something. She'd play a riff and I'd be like, keep playing that, you know, and, and start singing (laughs) a vocal over it. You know, she's so much more of like a, like a, a, like a melody writer with guitar. And and I just like, I like go off of my vocal when I'm writing, like that's where the music comes from for me for the most part. And I'm just trying to get, I'm trying to start a story and get a melody that is compelling and follow it down. And so there wasn't a lot of, that's why I think the songs are so short is because they're, they are almost like poems when they worked well, I thought. Do you start with lyrics or, or or music first? Like, what's your comfort zone when when a song comes to you? It's it's the it's the vocals, it's the melody, mm-hmm. just gibberish usually. Usually at the beginning, yeah, nonsensical, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah, of course. And then yeah. it's always just going back and back and making the trying to make the lyrics better and better. You know, usually. All right, y'all. You know what season it is. Tis the season for spring breaking and planning our summer travel. And if you're like me, you're already in your Airbnb app trying to find which spot is right for you. Now, listen, while I'm looking to spend all this money, what I'm not doing is thinking about making money with Airbnb. See, you got to change your mind state. Make the money while you're spending the money. How, you say, Laia, do I make the money? Well, you host at your house. And I know what you're thinking. I mean, my whole house? Uh, Well, no, you don't have to do your whole house. I mean, you could do a room or, you know, do the whole house. So make some money while you're spending some money this summer. I'm trying to tell you, your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at Airbnb.com slash host. Tired of not being able to get a hold of anyone when you have questions about your credit card? With 24-7 U.S.-based live customer service from Discover, everyone has the option to talk to a real person anytime, day or night. Yes, you heard that right. You can talk to a human on the Discover customer service team anytime. So the next time you have a question about your credit card, call 1-800-DISCOVER to get the service you deserve. Limitations apply. See terms at discover.com slash credit card. AT&T connects an ode to podcasts. Connect the alarm. Change the podcast you stream. Connect the snooze. Ten more minutes to dream. Connect the shower. Lather up with the news. Sports talk, comedians, or movie reviews. Connect with that three-hour philosophy show. Change the drive into work and traffic. So slow. Connect the dishes to voices that glow. Thank you to the geniuses of spoken audio. Connect the stories Change your perspective. Connecting changes everything. AT&T. 
I do want to know, um, what was the decision uh, on the Hot Rock also? That's the one album that, that John didn't produce with you guys. What was the decision to not work with him? I forget who produced the, the Hot Rock record, but... Yeah, it was this guy, Roger Mutno, who had worked with a band from Hoboken, Yola Tango. Uh, oh, okay. Word. Yeah, and and Yola Tango were definitely having a moment at the time. They, they were people who we really admired. And, you know, we were like, who produced the last Yola Tango record? And for us, you know, again, it was we were trying to get outside of our comfort zone and John had gone to the same college as all of us. And, you know, he had worked with bikini kill and he, you know, it, it was just like, what if we brought in someone from a slightly different world? And he, he was, he lived in Nashville and, you know, Yola Tango was kind of an anomaly for him. He worked with a lot more singer songwriters and he definitely approached our band a lot differently. There's not a lot of, it's not a very distorted record in terms of guitars. He really, you know, was I just remember cleaner? You know, he, yeah, it's a lot cleaner. And he was just yeah. like he just loved Corin. Janet and I were just like, oh yeah, uh-huh. and then like he just was like, oh Corin, Corin, Corin. And um, it was <laughs> you, you two know, moved to the side, <laughs> yeah, and which is fine. But we had just never been treated like that. And but you know, it's it wasn't the first or it was the first time. It definitely wasn't the last time where someone like singles someone out. But it was just funny because you know usually you're like, no, we're a band. And he was like, now Corin, I loved that. I love uh, that. Don't speak moment. <laughs> oh, don't speak. <laughs> um, but we, we, I, we really liked working with Roger, but it was just, it was different. And I'm glad we did something different. Um, I'm also, you know, curious about the, the group dynamic, especially with a group with, with a legacy is yours. Um, how important is it to maintain a personal friendship in lieu of the fact that you guys are also, having a business like I, I went through a period where like we started out as best friends and then somewhere by the third record then it's like we're just business partners and then all right two tour buses and then i'll see you at the gig <laughs> and, and then you know like we're i'll say in the last three years like Tariq and i are really like getting back to us really being friends again and not just about business but um how can you how do you balance that um, when you're also business partners and friends? Like, how do you, how is that balanced? Or is it just like on, on the off season? Or was it why that nine year hiatus happened? I mean, I think that, you know, like we were saying at the beginning, it feels like we've been on a journey, right? And, and I feel mm-hmm. like sometimes we balance things, you know, like dig me out. We were all, so young, but we're figuring all that kind of stuff out. How do we, how are we in a band? How are we friends? How are we running our own business? Mm -hmm. Sometimes it like worked really well and sometimes it didn't, you know? Yeah. I think similar to, to what you're saying, Amiris, like it's, it's shifted, you know? And I think there was a time, I think where we didn't intentionally, you know, care for it, like, you know, nurture it because you just kind of assume, well, we can, we can do all of this. We can, we'll be friends and we'll run this business. But I think the business part, you start to realize, well, that has its own like politics to it. And sometimes those do not overlap really well. And you have to kind of protect both. And mm-hmm. as friends, you're like, oh, why are we favoring the business? You know, you're like, which one are we favoring in that moment? And that can get really volatile. I think when we came back after the hiatus and we did, we all kept in touch during that time. 
Um, was it was it an it was actual better. conversation like we should take a break and an indefinite break? Like, do we take off for five years or hey, let's take we, off for a decade or? Well, I think Ian Mackay from Fugazi um, said he claims he invented the term hiatus or indefinite hiatus. Um, and I will. So I'll just give him credit for that. But I think we just use that term because we weren't sure. I think we thought we were done. Right, Corin? Did it? It felt kind of like we were done. I I didn't think so. Oh, we'll see. Here we go. So you know, after we the go. last Ooh. gig, so after the last <laughs> gig, like was it like okay, we'll we'll talk or you know, you like mean when we went on hiatus. I, th- yeah. I think the woods. The woods was the the last album of that period. So after the end of the woods, and I'm assuming that you toured behind it, or not? I think yeah, it was it was the woods. Yeah. yeah. Then what? Like what happened a month later or just a year or two go by and you're like, oh, shit, we haven't wrote a written a song in a second or I'm going to do. No, it was like I'm going to write or I got pregnant. That's also okay. (laughs) (laughs) I totally forgot that motherhood also plays a factor in this. Yeah. Yeah, Corin was going to have another baby and I was I, I anxiety like ruled my life back then like it just and i just had a ton of yeah i mean we all know people who have anxiety like now that i feel like that part of my life is in check i can see the amount of energy it takes to be around someone that has totally like unmitigated anxiety because you're just always you have to like suppress all your own shit so eggshells yeah yeah. so that they can like figure shit out and i think that was kind of me in the band you know everyone was like oh gosh you know carrie's dealing with all this stuff and so i think everyone was like this is not worth it you know corn's like if i'm gonna leave one kid and be on tour i have to bring a kid on tour this better be worth it you know and and i it just it was a natural breaking point i think so we were not like sitting around like waiting to write other songs it was like we're done how did you um you talk about your anxiety and kind of working through that how did you work through uh, those struggles i mean honestly i i went to therapy <laughs> i just i just did it i just hey. went and i was like i need help with this you know and i just worked some stuff out that felt like it was kind mm. of you know anxiety i think is just such a classic flip side to depression and when you start realizing that really you're just expressing like fear and sadness in in a way that's like much more outward, you know, you start kind of getting through it. And now, I mean, Corin, you can testify. I'm like, I'm way more chill, way more chill. (laughs) And also, (laughs) That's part of like how we work through being friends and, and business partners is because we both worked on stuff on our own before we said like, let's play music together again. It's like, we actually did some stuff, did some growing up. Wait, I have a theory and I know we're going to have to let you go soon and I want, I want to get to the end. I'm trying to like rush through each record, but I have a theory. All right. So when, when I started doing my, um, the deep dive, uh, your, Carrie, your book came out when 2016. Yeah. It was was a year after your book. Cause I remember we did those co-interviews. Yeah. Those things together. Okay. So I always had a theory that, um, whenever I gravitate towards a particular album in someone's canon, it's always the wrong album I gravitate towards. Like, I love Hot Rocks by The Stones. I love Rattle and Hum by U2. Like, I'm always picking the wrong damn album and their thing. 
And I'm afraid, what is, because again, all of your albums are critically acclaimed, but for you personally, what is your feeling behind one beat? Because I really loved, of, of all your records, one beat was my favorite. But what is the, like, I want to know if I chose the wrong album or not, like, in terms of, like, when people come to me and say, yo, man, I love the tipping point. I'm like, I fucking hate the tipping point. So it's, <laughs> I feel uncomfortable, but, like, with one beat, in your, or at least in your canon, what do you feel that your, your best work that represents you is? Do you think like an artist is just gonna cop to the record they don't like the most? Do you think like YouTube's <laughs> like but- YouTube's like Rattle and Hum sucks like or whatever it is like? Do you yeah, think- that's true. I've <laughs> talked to Bono about Rattle and Hum, and okay. he well, in hindsight, no, 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 I, I still stand by it. But I usually when I talk to fellow music snobs, when it comes to my rock shit, like I like Presence by Zeppelin. When I should be liking physical graffiti, but for some reason I always like the. I like the, three. Mine is three. That's the, my favorite one. But that's classic, one. right? But that was one. also a departure that's record. Just... So I'm not saying a departure record, but in in your canon, what do you feel is your sucks the most? Your favorite? <laughs> no. What is your favorite, and what do you feel your departure record is? <laughs> I mean, one beat is one of my favorites because it's a, it's okay, like a, well, I'm it's, growing up then. Yeah, it's because it's like such a record of it's so emotional. It was when I ha- it was right after I had my son, so a lot of the mm-hmm. the songs are about like that experience, about joy, and about like the fear of you know having this thing that you love more than anything in this kind of dangerous world. Yeah, I, I I think one we we definitely stand by one beat. For for years it was the album before that, All Hands on the Bad One, that I think we would I mean, it's hard to assess because it was definitely the first album where there was, I think Rolling Stone called it the dog biscuit of our of our catalog. <laughs> um, wow. and I and I remember just looking at those words, dog biscuit. I was like, wow, that's harsh. How important is the critical claim to you? Not you and know is what? it like having a like a perfect report card? Like, are you obsessed with keeping it on that level? No, because we 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 blew it up on the on the last two records. People were like, "Oh, this now that's." I mean, you know, the St. Vincent record that she produced for us. Uh, I was going to say the center hold. hold. That's like our definite it. departure record. I, okay, I, I like it too, and I think it's funny because now people like it. It took a you know it took the year and a half or two years. I mean, I think people liked it at the time, but it, it might not have been the same people that liked "Dig Me Out" or "One Beat." Like we we got a lot of new fans on the last record, and we we have got a lot of new fans on this record too. But the people that it was ex- a very experimental record. Yeah, but very. when you guys came on the show to promote, like yeah, I was I was into it. I was going to ask, what was it like working with St. Vincent? She was great. We learned so much from her. I mean, she's so, she's so, she approaches a, a song and songwriting with such a, like a larger vision. You know, she'll, she'll go in and, and just, you know, take a vocal part that I was doing in like a certain register and be like, well, what if you bump it up two octaves? And I was like, bump it up two octaves. Wow. Oh, push yourself. You know? <laughs> yeah. She's such a maximalist. And I think, you know, like you were talking about our early material, like there was, it, there was a lot of minimalism there. There was a lot of just this kind of like raw strip back, um, you know, essence to the band. And I think she just, she created this density in there that I thought was interesting, you know, for us, that's a new thing to explore. Um, it's a different way to get at some of the emotionality. Mm-hmm. Okay, so 
with uh, the path of wellness, um, of course, uh, this is uh, your first album without uh, Janet in the band. So first of all, what was the process like creating an album, you know, in the face of the apocalypse? I'm curious about anybody that's in a creative space, like that starts their process like around June, July or whatever. Like, so can you explain the, 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 the process of creating this record, especially the fact that um, I would assume that you guys started in, you know, somewhere in 2020, where was your headspace and how were you not, or were you using the energy of the panic of the world to create this album? I mean, a little of both. I mean, we actually started it. So it, it um, we were, we were supposed to go on tour with Wilco last summer and mm-hmm. you know, it was like the end of the touring cycle for the center won't hold. So it's, you know, those like secondary tertiary markets where it's just like amphitheaters in the summer. And, yeah. Right. Shed, when you shed shed, you're hiding. Right. Yeah. The shed tour. <laughs> and mm-hmm. so we were imagining, we started writing some songs thinking like, Oh, well maybe like road test some new material. And it had this like very sort of like outdoors feel like it was like, we're, we're making music to connect with people in this, in this like collective spaces, sunny days. And then all of a sudden it was like the pandemic, but we still had, I think musically something left over from that feeling. So I think we started in a place where the music felt like it was trying to imagine like togetherness, but then we were in this like claustrophobic, fearful, insular space you know, with so much uh, strife of different kinds going on around us, you know, from protests to forest, you know, wildfires to the pandemic itself. Mm -hmm. And so you get this kind of like narrow, like very, I don't know, just kind of these lyrics that are like trying to wrestle with all these things over music that has, I think, some lift to it. So it's a little bit of like a, I don't know, two things kind of meeting in the center. What do you think? Are you guys currently in in Portland right now or? Yeah. Yeah. What exactly is going on in Portland right now where it's like, it's a side of Portland I never knew existed. Like politically, like just what's been going on the last year and a half. Um, Is it, is it still happening? Like, can you just basically explain like what, what the environment is like there now? I think, unfortunately, it's still pretty tense, you know, like in terms of protesting and and the different groups that are drawn to Portland. I mean, we have this we have a police force that is out of date and I'll put it mildly. They're very out of date and how they're doing things. We have these very radical left wing protesters and we also have this very rural white conservative group that loves to come into portland and just cause trouble Mm -hmm. so we still have a lot of these different factions going on so it's it's we still have a lot of work to do here yeah i think there's i mean there was definitely a reckoning like there there was in many cities and you know there there are groups here like don't shoot pdx and care not cops that have been working for, uh, you know, racial justice and, you know, to get rid of like dismantle, like the police, the p- way policing is now for years, you know, and then of course that coalesced with 
the George Floyd, Breonna Taylor protests and the BLM movement. And that was what was happening last summer. But then you also had a faction that were not really aligned with that, that were just there to like fuck shit up. And so there's the people that are still kind of protesting tend to be not in the BLM movement, um, tend to just be a little more in the Antifa thing. And it's not that I disagree with everything Antifa stands for, but it is, it's the city is, has a long way to go. I think for like figuring out how to coalesce some of these ideas and actually make progress. But luckily there are people who have been working at this for a while that hopefully will kind of have their voice heard now that I think are hopefully having a a platform to make changes. But yeah, I mean, I'm sure people have been calling uh, anyone I know that lived in Portland had everyone like texting them, like what is going on? It just seemed so crazy (laughs) for a while. Yeah. Yeah, I was shocked. I was like, wow, I had to readjust my list. All right. (laughs) Before I let you go, uh, Carrie, I got to ask you, have you met her yet? No. Okay. Let's recall. <laughs> let's recall when we were on the Tonight Show. I'm like, how could you waste such an opportunity? I know, so, but that was so stressful because remember she was running late. Yeah, she's running know. late, and then and who are we referring to? Okay, by the way. So you know, there's there's a special place uh, in Carrie's heart for Madonna, the the 12 year old oh, okay. in Carrie is you know, and you know at the time. Uh, when we signed and changed, well, not changed our management, when Rich passed and we sort of uh, merged to Maverick Management, of course, you know, Guy O'Siri was running it. And kind of if you're down with Guy, then you you might be down with Madge as well. So knowing how much of a fan that Carrie was, I was like, well, I got to make this shit happen. Because, you know, uh, the, the group was on the show when Madonna was the couch guest. And so even in touring, like you guys were touring in Australia or whatever, and I found out she was there too. And I No, you hooked, to... you hooked us up. It was that was a great night. We went and saw her in a tiny club. That was the best. And so Man. I that's all I want. You, right, you but already delivered. I'm so grateful. So, so you are you one of those people <laughs> that like you don't want to meet your idols? I mean, I'm fine with that proximity going to she So you're satisfied with this. I'm satisfied. You, you have, had you have more than delivered. I am. I'm grateful. I don't know what else we could do at this point. Yeah, it could be anticlimactic. I I get it. I get it. <laughs> uh, I was reading uh, Carrie, a good a good buddy of mine, my uh, buddy Craig Jenkins. He uh, inter- interviewed you guys uh, last. It was last year. It was for the for the for the new record. And you were at the end of the interview talking about a heart documentary, or not a documentary. I guess a, the Ann Wilson. Oh, the biopic. Um, yeah. Yes, biopic. Yeah. Oh snap! Where's that at? What's the status on it? We're we're casting right now, and as I was telling, yes. as I was telling Word. Craig, it is so hard because I mean, oh, you say the word biopic, and everyone like any music fan just like braces themselves because they're like, oh god, mm. you know, there's walk there's, the line. Yeah, there's some great examples, <laughs> and there's some ones where you're just like, how did they cast this person? Well, this is not about music, but I, I wrote it. I and you know, I hopefully it's a different perspective because I I've come up in the Northwest. Like I, I love writing about music. I'm trying to make it for music fans as much as for movie fans, but we're casting and we've got to get it right. So that's where it's at. That's so dope. Yeah. Good luck. With Wait, that. I got one so more dope. last one before <laughs> we go. Um, did I not hear a rumor that you were considering of turning your, uh, your book into a series, a TV series or I tried. I I made. I got so far as to make the pilot, and then and then the network didn't pick it up. 
Wait, there's a pilot? Yeah, I'll send it to you. It was cool. Thanks. But I'm... All right. Anyway, I, it, I'm excited for you because you got this amazing movie coming out. This summer. Um, it's com- this is is it coming out this summer? All this right, all right. Def- okay, fine. But anyway. <laughs> no, yeah, it comes out It comes out July 2nd, and I'm excited. So We're excited. Yeah. I'm not I'm not trying to deflect. Wow. How could you pitch your own movie on your summer own of podcast? Deflection. I mean, what the heck? <laughs> <laughs> cool, man. It, 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 trust me. That's what I got Disney for. Um, I'd like to thank you for coming on the show. I appreciate it. And, you know, I'm I'm an, an admirer of, of 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 you guys and, and and your band. And thank you for blessing all this on the show. Ladies and gentlemen, Sleeker Kidney on Quest Love Supreme. Uh Bill. Yeah. Sir. Uh congratulations fantastic. on your success as well. Man, we're all yeah. successful. It's fantastic. Yeah. For Tony. Well, it's been an honor to be on this show with you. You know, <laughs> with, the big, Tony, with the Tony win- with yeah, the Tony with the Tony winner. And with all of you, thank you. Yeah. Yes. Thank y'all for hanging out with us. This was fun. Thank it was you. great. All, all right, right. Take on care. On behalf of Fontigolo, Sugar Steve, Bill, and Laia, this is Questlove, and we'll see you in the next go round. Hey, this is Sugar Steve. Make sure you keep up with us on Instagram at QLS and let us know what you think and who should be next to sit down with us. Don't forget to subscribe to our podcast. Much Love Supreme is a production of iHeartRadio. For more podcasts from iHeartRadio, visit the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you listen to your favorite shows. With every CBD product claiming to do something different, it's nearly impossible to decide what's best for you. Lazarus Naturals pioneered the farm-to-front-door model of transparency where they handle each step of the production process to ensure quality, potency, and consistency. Scannable labels allow you to see the test results of your hemp batch so you can be confident in the safety and quality. Visit LazarusNaturals.com today. Lazarus Naturals, committed to improving your life as well as the world around you. Not available in Idaho, Iowa, or South Dakota. It is Ryan here, and I have a question for you. What do you do when you win? Like, are you a fist pumper, a woohooer, a hand clapper, a high fiver? I kind of like the high five, but if you want to hone in on those winning moves, check out Chumba Casino. At chumbacasino.com, choose from hundreds of social casino style games for your chance to redeem serious cash prizes. There are new game releases weekly, plus free daily bonuses. So don't wait. Start having the most fun ever at chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. DTW, void, we're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions 18. Plus. I'm so excited to tell you, JCPenney and country music singer songwriter Walker Hayes are part partnering together on a new limited time men's collection for the everyday guy. What I love about Walker Hayes is his laid back nature. He's a family man and being a country mega star while also having seven kids, you know, he likes to keep his style cool and casual. This new collection is perfect for the guy living the t-shirt life or someone wanting some fresh options that feel just as good. It's easy to wear affordable styles that celebrate the ultimate family man, along with the quality, durability, and sensibility dads appreciate. Available online Saturday, May 4th at jcp.com and in-store Thursday, May 16th. Just in time for Father's Day. Limited time only. JCPenney, make it count.